And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I would like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. And I hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we took a look at two episodes of the classic Ultraman series, episodes 21 and 22 of that series, um, featuring, um, oh, who was it? That was uh, Kemular, and who was our other monster? It was, um, oh, um, Telesidon, Kemular and Telesidon. We also took a look at Avengers uh, number 199, which was the final installment of the uh, uh, short story where the Avengers took on the Red Ronin robot, which we were first introduced to, of course, in Marvel Godzilla World today. Uh, we're changing pace a little bit. We are shifting from Ultraman over to Dai and Gamera. We're taking a look at uh, the what many people consider to be the last of the original series of Gamera, which is Gamera versus Zegra from 1971. Of course, we know that it's not actually the last show a Gamera, but we'll talk about that a little bit. We also have an issue of my favorite comic of all time, Iron Man, my favorite superhero, as we are taking a look at issue number 193 of Iron Man, which continues our coverage of looking at characters featured in the uh, Marvel Godzilla series elsewhere in the uh, in the Marvel Universe, and we'll get into that and who appears in that particular comic a little bit later on. So, uh, before we get into the sh- into the show, though, I got a little bit of, of news to cover. Um, Ultraman, as we all know, that um, Mill Creek has uh, begun their release of all of the Ultraman series. They say they're going to release the entire series on uh, Blu-ray. And as of recording this, as I'm recording this right now, this week, the series uh, sets of the movie and series combo sets for Ultraman Orb. And Ultraman Jeed have been released. Uh, they are, again, mine are on the way from Amazon as I'm recording this. I've seen some folks on uh, Facebook and Twitter have been posting that they've received theirs. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Uh, and then uh, Ultra 7, the complete series Blu-ray set of Ultra 7, is scheduled for release December 10th, which is only a few weeks away as I'm recording this. Now, we don't have any firm release dates beyond Ultra 7 uh, in December, but um, previously Mill Creek had said that in the spring of 2020, we are going to get the season sets for Return of Ultraman, which is the third Ultraman series. That's um, uh, Ultraman Jack who looks very similar, of course, to the original Ultraman, but a little bit different. Then Ultraman RB, which was the latest uh, Ultraman series, the one that followed on after Jeed. That, like Orb and Jeed, will be a series and movie combo set. Ultraman Fight Orb, or excuse me, Ultra Fight Orb, which was a web series that aired uh, between Orb and uh, Jeed. And that's, uh, I've not seen any of that. I haven't seen any fan subs on that one, but I know that uh, they've, they've done these sort of um, uh, Intermezzo series before, so interesting to see that. And then Ultraman Ace 
following on after uh, the return of Ultraman for the Showa series. So very excited for that. Uh, as I said previously, you know, Shout Factory releasing their Super Sentai sets. Um, I have a couple of those, but I haven't been buying all of them. I am buying all of these, and it's it's gonna it's gonna put a damper on it. But man, I do love me some Ultraman, so uh, definitely eager to get my hands on those. Switching gears a little bit, jumping over to the gaming side of things, uh, the Bandai Godzilla card game has been released. Now this uses the Chrono Clash card system, which I have heard of. I've seen it on various other licensed properties, but I've never actually played it. Uh, there's a couple of different um, like card mechanic systems that get licensed out nowadays. The Versus one is very popular, uh, but Chrono Clash, I've, I've seen that again for Japanese properties. Uh, but And now it's being set with Godzilla as well. Now, uh, the box set contains four pre-constructed decks. Uh, every player needs their own deck to play. Now, it's intended for two to four players, and it's ages six and up and only takes about 30 minutes to play a game. So it doesn't look like this uh, Chrono Clash system is too complex, but, uh, you know, that's that's not bad. I don't mind something that's all ages, especially for an evergreen, all ages property like Godzilla. So that's pretty cool. Uh, it is available right now and uh, retails for about $60 is what I saw online. Hap tip to Sci-Fi Japan uh, for breaking this news for me. I, uh, I'm i not going to go on the fence about this. It does look neat. $60 is, is a little bit out of my normal gaming price range, but uh, if it means four players can play, it might be worth checking out. So I'm going to keep an eye on this one. And if I pick it up, I'll let you know. And we'll cover it here on the show as we have a, uh, a strong history of covering uh, giant monster card games. Because, of course, we did Godzilla Stomp and RAR. Uh, a while back. So uh, that's all the news I have. Uh, unfortunately, no Godzilla vs. Kong news other than there's no news, despite the fact that this movie is supposedly coming out in like five months, not even five, yeah, yeah, five months. We don't have a trailer yet. We are sitting uh, midway through November and we don't have a trailer for this movie that's supposedly coming out in March. So uh, I don't know what that means. Um, if, if you ask me, I think that this movie may end up getting delayed. I always thought it was kind of a quick turnaround between Godzilla King of the Monsters to Godzilla vs. Kong. But um, for good, bad, or otherwise, I am not a highly paid Hollywood executive, so I don't have any actual insight. That's just Luke sitting here speculating. So uh, I welcome any and all speculation about Godzilla vs. Kong because I'm super eager to see it. Because uh, I really, really liked all three movies leading up to it. And I have long said for many, many years that if any movie deserved a modern update, it was King Kong vs. Godzilla. So uh, just going to leave that out there. And hopefully hopefully, I'll be proven wrong. And by the time we uh, talk again, there'll be a trailer and we'll all be super excited and ready to go. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. Anyway, that's all the news I have. If you have any news, please feel free. Send it in to earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. We'll get it here on the show and, of course, give you credit for it. Uh, but that's all I've got. So I'm going to take a quick break. We're going to be right back. Here on Earth Destruction Directive with Gamera versus Zegra. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. Because you demanded it. It's Treasury Cast, a podcast devoted to the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. DC, Marvel, Archie, IDW, and more, bigger than life. It's the Treasury Cast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. 
available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on fireandwaterpodcast.com. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Gamera vs. Zegra was released in Japan on July 17, 1971. It did not make its way to the United States until it was picked up by Sandy Frank's King Features Entertainment. And from there, it played on television in the United States starting in either 1985 or 1987. I have seen both dates uh, for that. Uh, our writer is Nissan Takahashi. Our producer is Yoshihiko Manabe along with Hideo Nagata and our director is Noriaki Iwasa and our synopsis comes from Wikipedia. Without warning an alien spaceship attacks a Japanese moon base. Back on Earth young Kenichi, Kenny the English dub, his father Dr. Yosuke, Henry in the English uh, dub, uh, his friend Helen and her father Dr. Tom Wallace investigate the spaceship descending into the ocean. They go to investigate, but soon are captured by a teleportation beam that brings them aboard the spaceship. Inside the spaceship, a human-looking woman appears to them and reveals that she is of an alien race called the Zegrins. By way of demonstrating Zegrin technological prowess, she creates a gigantic earthquake that wreaks havoc in Japan. She had previously caused two other earthquakes, one in Peru and the other in Arabia. The English dub specifically mentions the Indian Ocean. She then tells her prisoners of the planet Zegra's history and its great scientific advances, which, unfortunately, have resulted in its destruction, but in searching for a new home, Zegra has found Earth. The woman contacts authorities on Earth and orders them to surrender or she will kill her prisoners. Tom declares that the Zegran woman is insane, and in anger, she sends the two men into a hypnotic trance. Kanichi and Helen take action, successfully using the ship's control console to escape with their fathers. Enraged, Zegra orders the woman to go to Earth and kill the children. She said it would be simpler to kill all the people of Japan, but Zegra tells her that humans must be preserved so they can be used for food. Now Gamera, intent on discovering the identity of the alien interloper, flies in to save the day and rescues the children and their fathers. The UN authorities, after questioning Kenichi and Helen, resolve to attack Zegra. The defense force jets scramble, but the Zegran spaceship makes short work of them with its powerful lasers. The alien woman arrives on Earth, describes as a, disguised as a normal human, begins her search for Kenichi and Helen. She hitches a ride with a Kamigawa SeaWorld Dolphin Tracker back to that facility, which the military is now using as its center of operations. She finds two children, but before she can catch them, they run away from her. Gamera begins an underwater assault on the Zegran spaceship, which transforms... This is not really an accurate statement, uh, which releases the giant shark-like fish when hit by Gamera's flaming breath. Zegra grows larger and larger, and finally halts the heroic turtle with a ray that suspends his cellular activity. Immobilized, Gamera sinks into the sea. Zegra then makes contact with the people of Earth, saying that they should give up and surrender all the seas to it. Back at SeaWorld, the dolphin trainer and the facility scientists discover a way to break the alien's hypnotic control with sonic waves. Thus, they manage to disable the Zegrin woman, only to learn that she is actually an Earth woman named Chikako Sugawara, Laura Lee in the English dub, who has been in a moon rover during the initial lunar attack and was captured and used by Zegra. The doctors, you employ a bathysphere to attempt to wake Gamera, only to find that Kenichi and Helen have stowed away on board. Zegra suddenly attacks them and again demands the immediate surrender of Earth or will destroy the bathysphere. The UN commander reluctantly agrees to the alien's terms. 
An electrical storm approaches the bay and a couple of lightning bolts revive Gamera, who stealthily takes the bathysphere from the sea floor when Zegra is not looking and returns it to the surface. Gamera and Zegra face off for a final time and Zegra, using its superior versatility underwater, slices Gamera's chest with its blade-like dorsal fin. Gamera takes a hold of Zegra, flies into the air with it, and then drops it at high speed, slamming the alien monster into the land. Zegra stands up awkwardly on its tail fins in order to fight Gamera, but Gamera further incapacitates Zegra by jamming a boulder through its nose, pinning it to the ground. Gamera then grabs another boulder and uses it, like a mallet, played a xylophone on Gamera's dorsal fins to play the Gamera theme. Finally, Gamera kills Zegra by setting its body on fire with its flame breath, reducing it to ashes in a massive, massive conflagration, and the day is saved. Oh boy, th this is an... <laughs> the Gamera series always is a little bit more odd, I find, than the Godzilla series, but this is one of the more odd entries in an odd series, so let's get right into our notes. Now, Dai went bankrupt shortly after this film was finished. Uh, as a result of that, it was distributed to, to theaters by an outfit called the Dainichi Film Distribution Company Limited. Uh, though this was actually the result of Dai and Nikatsu, who you may remember did dabble in the Daikaiju uh, genre with Gappa of the Tribe Fibian Monster. But uh, Nikatsu was more known more for their uh, uh, other types of films, including their, their, I think they're called pink films. They're kind of like erotic style films that they produced. Uh, but they were merging to share distribution costs. Now, uh, this was not, there, there was supposed to be a follow-up movie to this. Um, there, I've heard several rumors over the years. Uh, in John LeMay's book, the big book of Japanese giant monster movies, The Lost Films, um, doing, you know, John LeMay does a lot of research. I know you've heard him over on my brother's show. Um, and, you know, he makes a statement, and I, I tend to believe it, that the next film was actually going to be called Gamera vs. Wyvern, and was going to feature the monster, the Wyvern, who was uh, a giant serpent with two heads. And with the idea being that this was going to compete, this monster was going to compete with the return of King Ghidorah in 1972 over in the film that would become Godzilla vs. Gigan. Now that film, of course, was never made. The story goes that when Dai finished this film and then they announced that the studio was bankrupt, that there was a riot on the studio uh, <laughs> grounds by all the angry employees and that supposedly a hammer was taken to specifically to the wyvern suit and it was destroyed and a lot of other equipment and material was destroyed uh, at this time which made it i mean the studio was already in financial dire straits having all this material destroyed just made it absolutely impossible it's why very little survives from this era. A lot of it was destroyed after the release of Gamera versus Zegra. Um, now, of course, there would be another Gamera film. Uh, nine years later, we would get Super Monster Gamera. A little bit different than what I normally consider, and what most people think normally consider the, the standard Showa Gamera films. And we'll talk about Super Monster Gamera at another time. But uh, again, uh, unfortunately, a bad set of circumstances here for Dai. And uh, so we, we're, we're left with this film and then uh, what could have been with Gamera versus Wyvern. Now, incredibly, this was released one week prior to Godzilla versus Hedra, also, of course, known as Godzilla versus a smog monster, uh, a similarly themed, ecologically aware monster movie. It really was the zeitgeist of the uh, 
the the early 70s especially in, in japanese film especially in genre film we see this but that's just amazing to me I, I know these movies were contemporaneous with each other but to think about a gamera film and a godzilla film coming out within a week is really just kind of astounding to me now the film opens up on the moon as the zegrin ship attacks the moon base it's a very interesting model but unfortunately we don't get a really great look at it the scene is over much too quickly and i hope you didn't blink because it's the only model carnage in the entire film, as it seems that the budget had been cut, at least for special effects. Now, possibly this uh, lack of miniature work is related to shooting on location at Kamigawa SeaWorld. Now, speaking of SeaWorld, it had actually just opened in 1970. So, very similarly to tying Gamera versus Jiger to Expo 1970, it seems like an attempt by Dai to give the film some extra buzz by latching onto a newsworthy locale and setting a lot of the action there. Uh, it, it does make sense that you have this, uh, you know, a marine park and a marine uh, research area when you have a monster that is a, a, a shark. You know, and is a marine-based monster, and you have these ideas about in your film about conservation and ecology. So it makes sense. It's a little weird, but you know, hey, it's fine. It's 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 like I said, it's no different than being at Expo 1970. So it, it makes sense. Now we learned that there have been massive earthquakes all over the world, including a magnitude 16, which killed 10,000 people in Peru. Now, it's been a while since I took Earth Science in high school, but the Richter scale only goes up to a 10. A 16 on the Richter scale, because remember the Richter scale is logarithmic, it's not geometric. A 16, that would be enough vibration to shake the Earth apart. I'm going to just assume that in this film, which takes place in the far-flung future of 1985, that they have a different uh, scale that they use to measure earthquakes. Now, yes, I know what you're saying. This film does take place in the then future of 1985. Don't worry. Everything still looks like 1971. You're okay. Now, we do get kind of a basic discussion of pollution and how it is negatively impacting the world's oceans. Again, this is very understandable given the time frame of the film. And as I said, coming out right at the same time as Godzilla versus Hedra. The ecological themes, and we'll see this as we go forward, they would essentially continue throughout the 1970s over at Toho. Uh, not only in the monster films, but also in like Prophecies of Nostradamus. We saw this, and we did that way back in a guide a very, very long time ago. So, um, And I'm sure that Dai would have done something more with this, but again, due to the bankruptcy, this was the last installment of this era, so we didn't get any more of it from them, just this one. Now, very early on here, Gamera appears out of nowhere. Uh, this is, this is a, I read this as the producers saying, hey kids, don't worry, Gamera's coming. You know, get, get through grown-ups talking for a little bit, and then they will get Gamera, so. The kids and their dads, they're kidnapped by the Zegrin ship, and we see that Zegra has a lady henchman. Meow. Now, uh, she is played by Eiko Yaname, and she's credited as Woman X. Uh, she is quite fetching in her jumpsuit, for sure. Now, she explains to the kidnappees, and to the audience, of course, that the Zegrins came from the Romulus galaxy 400 light years away. Now, when the kids grasp this concept faster than the adults, she drops a great line. She says, children grasp things much faster than adults. Uh, that probably played very well to the young target audience of this film. I, I always like that when in a film that's obviously aimed at kids, they give the kids more credit for figuring things out than adults. Because it's like, eh, am I right? Am I right, kids? Eh? 
Now, to demonstrate their power, Woman X uses the earthquake machine to destroy Tokyo with a magnitude 18 earthquake. What? Wait, wait what? <laughs> All we get to see is a couple of aftermath shots on a monitor. I'm sorry. Aliens just leveled Tokyo, doubtly killing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, given the population density of the city of Tokyo, even in 1971 or maybe 1985, I don't know. And we gloss over it in like about a minute, and it's never made reference to again. Oh, boy. <laughs> that one uh, even had it underlined in the notes. I'm like, okay. Now, after the kids manage to escape with their dads, Zegra explains that the water of their home planet is too polluted, uh, so they have to relocate. Now, I'm not going to lie. This is essentially the exact same motivation that the Star Hunter M Nebula aliens have the following year in Godzilla vs. Gaia. Now, again, it's a classic trope. I'm not, and I'm not saying that anybody was ripping anybody off, but the idea of aliens having to relocate because they polluted their planet so much, it's, it, you see it in other things. I just found the, the, uh, coincidence of the two films released, um, you know, with two consecutive years having the same theme was really kind of funny. Now, Zegra also lays out his plan to keep all the human race as food, which, while forward-looking, seems like it would be really difficult to enforce. I mean, how do you keep that many billion people in, in line, right? I mean, you're just one monster and one girl. I mean, yeah, you can throw earthquakes out there after a while, but, you know, not every, I'm, I'm just saying that that seems like it would be a difficult thing to, to keep up with. I mean, hey, at least he's thinking long term. You know, he's got an idea of what he's going to eat. Now, back on the surface, Zegra's ship is giving chase after the kids and their dads, and it cuts a merchant ship in half, continuing the trend in the Gamera series of monsters breaking vehicles into pieces. Uh, this leads to Gamera reappearing to save uh, the kids and their dads and the Gamera song, which is always welcome. Now, when we get the scrambled jets to attack the Zegrin ship, we get some really, really wonderful stock footage of the JASDF, that's the Japanese Air Self-Defense Force. We get to see a lot of JASDF jets on maneuvers. Now, I took a look at this. This is actually a squad of F-104 Starfighters, and those were actually the backbone of the JASDF for pretty much all of the 1960s and 70s. Daikaiju fans will recognize this jet, even if maybe not this particular stock footage, but models of this F-104 appear in a lot of different Daikaiju films. It's a very common look, and it looks really sharp in this film with the actual JASDF colors, where it's a silver body and it's got the red circle to represent the Japanese flag. It looks really sharp. I mean, part of it is to pad out runtime a little bit, so we do get quite a bit of stock footage, but it's really nice. And we get to see some very nice, very tight maneuvered flying from the pilots. And if you have any appreciation for fighter jets, I think you'll appreciate this scene. Now, Zegra sends Woman X out to capture the kids to protect his, and I quote, secret plan to conquer Earth. Yes, folks, the secret plan which they broadcast out to the world and then leveled Tokyo to the ground as a demonstration of that secret plan. <sighs> anyway, Woman X goes out in search of the kids and she finds Bikini Girls. Yes, it's the long-awaited return of Bikini Girls to Earth Destruction Directive. Even more awesome is that when Woman X appears next, she's wearing one of the bikinis. So, 
is one of those poor hypnotized women that she ran into now naked? I, I, I mean, come on. Now, after in her bikini, she gets in a cab to SeaWorld. And then while at SeaWorld, everybody's looking at her because she's walking around in her bikini. So she hypnotizes another woman and steals her clothes. So now there are two naked, hypnotized women laying around somewhere in this movie. And this is for kids. Yeah. Anyway, Woman X now, now she has a miniskirt and chunky heels as her outfit while she chases the kids around SeaWorld. Frankly, this entire sequence can be filed under a little something for the dads. And I'm not going to lie, I was okay with that. Now, additionally, while she is chasing the kids, Woman X is recognized. She runs past a bunch of people and they all say, hey, 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 and they chase after her. It's not clear at this point how they know her. But she gets everybody's attention anyway. I assumed, just from the way that everybody responded to her and started chasing after her, that she was like a movie star or an idol. But it's really unclear at this point. Of course, they do address this a few scenes later, so I'm okay with that. It, it is explained. But I didn't remember this plot point when I was watching it. So I'm like, why, why do they recognize her? It would have been funny if she took over like an actress's body. But anyway, so um, Bikini Girls notwithstanding. Back at the military, they have discussions of how to defeat Zegra. Naturally, these discussions turn to the H-bomb. And as this is a Japanese movie, the use of the H-bomb is immediately dismissed. It is good to see that some things never change. Now, Gamera gets back on the scene at this point. He attacks Zegra's ship underwater. I have to ask this question. Just how hot is Gamera's flamethrower if it can fire out as full gouts of flame underwater? I mean, I'm willing to give it the benefit of the doubt at this point. We're this many films into the series. It just is. But that's pretty dang hot right there, right? You know what I'm saying? So this leads to Zegra getting revealed when the uh, the ship gets destroyed. And the sharky monster just grows and grows and grows to gigantic proportions thanks to the lower water pressure of Earth. It's actually a pretty neat... Uh, shot where they show Zegra swimming around and he's he's smaller than Gamera and then he stops like in front of him and they do a camera trick where he just keeps getting larger and larger until he's uh, the Zegra is, is Zegra puppet especially is, is as larger than Gamera. It's actually a very nicely done shot. It's probably my favorite effect shot uh, in in the film to be honest. Um, Zegra's an interesting monster. He's he's one of the few Daikaiju uh, much more at home in the water than on land. Sort of like Ibra in that respect. Um, he's a shark in the same way that Gamera is a turtle. The general shape is right, but the details, of course, are fantastical. Amusingly, Zegra's got kind of a bird-like beak. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure this is more supposed to be like a, like a squid's beak, but it does kind of look like a bird's beak. Uh, again, we would see in Godzilla vs. Gigan the following year, Gigan has kind of a bird-like beak as well. Another coincidence. Now, Zegra is represented both by a puppet and a suit. The swimming puppet, as opposed to what we'd normally think of like a flying puppet, but same difference. The swimming puppet is much better. Zegra looks not a little bizarre standing upright on his rear fins. He looks like he's about to tip over. But the puppet looks really nice and they got it moving quickly enough that it really looks like he's zipping through the water. It's pretty nicely done. Uh, the battle here, it's kind of a short one once it gets to land. Zegra blasts Gamera, and Gamera sinks down into the water with his feet sticking up out of it. One book I had when I was young, 
I want to say it was the Encyclopedia of Monsters by Jeff Rovin, which I cannot find my copy of. If you have a copy of the Encyclopedia of Monsters by Jeff Rovin, uh, get in touch with me or Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. Anyway, I think it was in that book that uh, Jeff Rovin said that Gamera looked like a ruined pier with the post sticking out of the water with his feet pointing up to the sky. And I have to agree, it's the perfect description. Now, Kenny and Helen's dads, they've been in observation because they have not recovered from Woman X's hypnosis. Now, the solution to the hypnosis turns out to be a certain frequency being broadcast nearby. Now, this makes as much sense as anything else. I'm willing to buy that. However, the execution of this cure is a bit nuts. Essentially, and I'm not making this up, the doctor shouts, Ah! Ah! Uh, into a walkie-talkie over and over again until the men wake up. As I said, I wish I was making this up, but I'm not. This really happens in this movie. Woman X finally catches up to the kids, but she herself is also cornered by the JSDF. Uh, this leads to the single greatest threat in cinematic history. As she shouts, If you come closer, I'll feed them to the dolphins! If you come closer, I'll beat them to the dolphin. Now you come Move on. Move me. Yep. Yeah. Moving on. Uh, now with uh, the dads uh, recovered and Woman X back to being Laura Lee, uh, we now see some more model work. We get some helicopters carrying the bathysphere. Uh, the bathysphere, it's pretty basic, um, which befits a bathysphere. You know, they're, they're, you know, fairly straightforward. It's a bright yellow one. Um, you know, no Beatles references, please. Uh, and, but, you know, they're mostly just circular with some knobs and tubes. So they're, they're pretty, fairly straightforward. I like the helicopter work. Helicopters, as, as we've talked about here, difficult to pull off at the scale you normally do in a Daikaiju film. These look pretty good. I think it helps that they're not, uh, attack helicopters. They're, they're towing something, so that helps a little bit, and we don't get too long, you know, we don't linger on them. But I'm also, I like helicopters, so I'm probably more prone. Uh, of course, the kids have stowed away on the bathysphere, because of course they have. I would expect nothing less. You know, that's just the way it is, especially in a Gamera movie. Zegra threatens the bathysphere, and, and the, the JSDF, they plan to surrender to save the two kids and the two dads. They're going to give up the lives of billions of people on the rest of the world to save four people. That's some, uh, that's some Star Trek Three stuff right there, folks. That's all that is. Whew. Now, of course, Zegra hits the bathysphere with his laser and then doesn't follow up on it. Um, yeah, I'm serious. He, he shoots it and then doesn't, like, smash it or do anything. He instead takes a nap and is literally snoring. Uh, I'm, again, I'm, I'm not making this up. This, this gives Gamera time to get struck by lightning like King Kong or Godzilla from Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster and get revived. He, uh, he rescues the bathysphere and we learn that the occupants are not dead. They are merely devoid of any cellular activity and are revived. They, they've been down in this bathysphere that was leaking and losing air for hours and hours and hours, but they're okay. Yeah, folks, it's getting a little weird at this point. Even for a Gamera film, I'm just putting it out there. Thankfully, it is now time for the final fight. <laughs> Zegra manages to cut into Gamera's hand and his shell underwater. Very impressive. Uh, you know, I mean, anytime anybody can, can damage Gamera's shell, that's a good way to put over how powerful his enemy is. 
Frankly, Gamera's had enough of this crap, and he grabs Zegra, flying him out of the water, dropping him like a gravity bomb onto the shore. He did something similar with Virus a few films back. I guess that's what you do. You got a monster in the water, pick him up and slam him down. Like, I'm going to pick him up, I'm going to slam him down. You know, a, a Tex Ferguson type of thing. Um, Gamera then shoves a boulder onto Z's beak and knocks him down. It's it's almost like he's he's just like, really, dude, serious? We're, we're doing this, are we? Adding insult to injury, Gamera, as I'd said in the synopsis, picks up a boulder, plays Zegra's spines like a xylophone. Of course, playing the tune of the Gamera song. This is classic. I mean, it's it's just so funny. And at this point, w with this film, this film is so crazy that, of course, of course he plays his, his uh, enemies back like a xylophone. I would be disappointed if he didn't at this point. Uh, the final blow is the flamethrower. Gamera immolates Zegra into ash, and the people cheer him on. Gamera clearly taking no chances with Zegra. Uh, we are not looking for a return engagement for this guy. Uh, we end the film with Kenny tossing a bottle over his head in celebration. His father delivers the ecology message. It's forced, but I'm not opposed to it. Uh, you know, it's it, it fits the tone of the film. The inclusion makes sense. And, of course, you shouldn't litter. I'm all, I'm all in favor of that, especially glass on the beach. You're, don't bring glass on the beach, folks. I'm, I'm from South Carolina. I know what you're thinking. Luke, you must live at the beach. I don't live at the beach. There's parts of South Carolina that are not beach, I promise. Uh, but... Uh, you don't bring glass to the beach, and so good on that. So uh, that that is how our film ends. Yeah, folks, this is not a good movie. Now, um, when I watched the previous movie, Gamera vs. Jiger, back in episode 64, I was legitimately surprised at how much I enjoyed it and how well that film held together. This, unfortunately, is the exact opposite. I had not remembered this movie being as inane or goofy as it is. Uh, as a whole, the movie does not work very well at all. It just, it, it's, it just, parts of it just don't make sense. And they go, it goes on forever. That's the other thing. It's, it's, at 90 some minutes, it feels a lot longer than it actually is. It's a poor showing for the final old school Gamera film. As I, as I said, yeah, we'll be covering Super Monster Gamera, but you know what I mean. Um, this film, Gamera vs. Zegra, it's bizarre, but at least it's not a compilation film like, like that one, so. Zegra himself, good monster design, but he doesn't get much to do. You know, Jiger got, it seems like Jiger was on screen about the same amount of time, but had more to do because we also got the baby Jiger and stuff like that. Whereas Zegra here, I mean, he spends a good portion of the, the first uh, half of the film in his ship. And we just kind of see his head kind of peeking out over the top. And Woman X does a lot of the dirty work for him. So it's only like two scenes with Zegra. Um, there's a lot of talk, a lot of pointless chasing around. I, I joked about Woman X chasing the kids around in, um, in, in, you know, in her miniskirt and heels and that as a dad, I appreciated that, but there's nothing to it. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's like part, I'm going to use, uh, Andrew Leyland or Shag's reference. It's like part three of a six part Doctor Who. It's a lot of running around chasing each other. Um, now, of course, as I said, the middle-aged dude in me likes Woman X in a bikini, but that's a poor excuse to hang your movie on. It, unfortunately, just kind of bland, disjointed. Um, I like pretty much everything. You know, I don't try to be a savage critic, but this was a little rough going watching this one. And uh, I was very disappointed with this, especially, as I said, after how much I enjoyed Gamma vs. Jiger. It's a previous installment now. If you want to own Gamma vs. Zegra, you have less options than you would think, uh, especially from a few years ago. Now, the Ultimate Collection Volume 2 Blu-ray and the Gamma Bundle, they're both out of print. I am a, I'm amazed by that. I really would have thought, and, and I said the same thing again when we did Jiger. I would have thought those would have stayed in print forever as an evergreen release, but they're out of print. 
Um, there is the DVD double feature with Super Monster Gamera. That's still available. But if you're, if you're looking just to get a hold of this film and maybe a few other Gamera films, there's a set available. It's a compilation set. It has War of the Monsters, Destroy All Planets, Gamera the Invincible, Attack of the Monsters, Gamera vs. Gauss, Gamera vs. Monster X, Gamera vs. Zegra, and Gap of the Triphibian for $13. That's all the Gamera movies. Before not counting Super Monster Gamera and Gappa for 13 bucks. Now I'm sure that they're the AIP TV versions or the Sandy Frank versions are not, you know, Japanese or anything like that, but for 13 bucks, that's a pretty good deal, you know, and you get Gappa in there too. And Gappa was pretty decent. We covered that on the show as well. But just, I mean, some of these are harder to find. Like Gamma versus Gauss was hard, and Gamma versus Monster X, which is Gamma versus Jiger, those were harder for me to find than. Uh, War of the Monsters, which is uh, Barugan, uh, Destroy All Planets, which is Virus, Gamma the Invincible, the original, is pretty easy to find, and then Attack of the Monsters, which is Guren. Just to have, um, you know, I said Gauss, Jiger, and Zegra so readily available, I think I think that set's probably worth picking up. Is anyone, if any, if you have, a, if anyone out there has it, easy for me to say, send me an email. Let me know what the quality's like. I may just pick it up just to have it. I have all these films, but. You know, for 13 bucks for eight movies, that's one you just you, you can bring on a trip or something or let the kids have or whatever. So what do, what do you guys think? Do you guys have any strong opinions on Gamma versus Zegra? Do you like this one? Do you not like this one? Do you only like the Misty? I do recommend the Misty. Uh, if you get a chance to watch that, maybe on the uh, the Gamera, Misty versus Gamera box set or something. Uh, but let me know. Write in, EarthDestructionDirective at Yahoo.com. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on this last of the, you know, standard sort of show a gamma films kind of an odd way for the series to go out but it's an odd series so i guess that makes sense i'd love to hear your feedback i'd love to hear what you think about this movie all right i'm going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more here on earth destruction directive Kenny, look at this. Someone threw it away. You know, Kenny, the seas and the oceans are among the most precious possessions that we have on Earth. But all this pollution can threaten man's very existence. Our water is sacred. Gamera taught us that lesson. If the oceans die, then mankind will die. So we have to protect them. Yeah, you're right, Daddy. Good boy. Right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. 
Iron Man number 193 was cover dated April 1985 from the Marvel Comics Group and was released on or about January 15th, 1985. Hat tip to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that information. Our writer is Denny O'Neill. Penciler is Luke McDonald. The inkers are Aiken and Garvey. The letterer, Rick Parker. Colorist is Bob Sharon. Editor is Mark Gruenwald. Editor-in-chief is Jim Shooter. Our story is called The Choice and the Challenge, and our synopsis comes from the official index to the Marvel Universe for Iron Man. Flying over the Pacific Ocean, Tigra's Quinjet is smacked out of the sky by a giant lizard creature. She crash lands and calls for help. Rhodey apologizes for being a jerk and tries to give Tony the Iron Man armor, but Tony refuses and tells him to talk to Hank Pym about his headaches. Dr. Demonicus yells at the creature for not destroying the aircraft and prepares to eliminate any surviving witnesses. Tony arrives at the West Coast Avengers headquarters in his armor and tells Hawkeye that Iron Man is taking a leave of absence from the West Coast Avengers, removing his helmet and revealing that he was the original Iron Man so that Hawkeye will believe him. Tigra's distress call comes through and Hawkeye and Mockingbird ask Tony to come along but he declines. Disgusted with his refusal, the two Avengers leave. Reflecting on recent events, Tony decides to help after all and follows another Quinjet. Tigra wanders around the island finding a native village. Hawkeye and Mockingbird are attacked, crashing in the ocean. On the island, Dr. Demonicus orders the creature to attack Tigra as Tony meets up with the two Avengers. In New York, Bethany Cave tries to visit Tony in his penthouse, but the doorman informs her he doesn't live there anymore. Back in the island, Tony and the Avengers attack Dr. Demonicus and the creature. Dr. Demonicus escapes. Tony flies away carrying the creature, while Hawkeye and Mockingbird round up Demonicus's men. Tony does not return, and Hawkeye worries about him. Well, I, you know, first off, let me just say it's great to be covering Iron Man. It is my uh, favorite comic of all time. Iron Man is my favorite hero. Uh, I've said this many times before. Uh, so it really was nice to go dig out uh, out of my Iron Man run and pull out number 193 here. Uh, I got this book. I want to say I got this book as part of a lot that covered most of Denny O'Neill's run that I got off of eBay about 13, 14 years ago, somewhere around there. Um, and uh, part of when I was filling in, I'm not quite done with all of Volume 1. I've got about 30 issues or so left, all from the first few years. But uh, I do remember getting this one. So let's get right into the notes. Now, on our cover, um, we have... Um, the big lizard, who is Godzilla, but we are not allowed to say it's Godzilla, so we're just going to call him Godzilla. He is in the back, um, and he is holding Tigra. Mockingbird is looking to looking on kind of in horror. Hawkeye is turning and yelling at Tony, who is wearing a gray armor. Stark, don't just stand there. Save Tigra. And Tony is saying, I, I can't. And guest starring Tigra and the West Coast Avengers. Um, scale questions. Scale's a little odd here. Um, the size of Tigra in Godzilla's hand. I'm not going to let it go too much. It is the cover. They've got to try and fit a lot of stuff in here. I understand how that goes. Um, Godzilla's actually bending down, so he's in the frame. I thought that was kind of funny, because he has his head kind of ducked down underneath the Iron Man logo, which is uh, very amusing. Um, I, I do appreciate that, though, because that, otherwise, if his face was behind the logo, it would look kind of... I don't know. I wouldn't like that, so I do like this. And then, oddly enough, Tigra... And she is named twice on the cover because it says Save Tigra, and then it says guest starring Tigra and the West Coast Avengers. And then her name 
in the little guest starring box is bigger and it's in like her logo and it's in two-toned color whereas west coast avengers is just in regular letters so uh, i guess they were hoping tigra was going to sell some books i mean i tigra wasn't a new character in 1985 she was i, I want to say wasn't she around in the in the 70s with with werewolf by night i don't really but I'll, be, I'll be honest i i don't really know much about tigra um other than uh wasn't she was after she was she was the cat before Hellcat, I guess. I I really don't know. I'm 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 showing my Marvel ignorance here because I just don't know. I know Tigra in the context of the West Coast Avengers. That's really about it. So maybe she was gonna sell some some uh, some units. I don't know. Uh, turning over to page one, um, as uh, I I like the scale here. We get the the large monster versus a small scale Tigra. She's in her Quinjet, and you can see. Uh, just it, it's just in silhouette. You can see her sitting at the controls, and that looks much more correct from a scale standpoint. With uh, uh, Godzilla smacking her Quinjet as it tries to fly uh, past him, I like that one a lot. It's sort of kind of Godzilla. They have to go to lengths to have it not be called Godzilla, uh, but from Demonicus's dialogue later and kind of the implication, it it is Godzilla. He has a big sail on his back. He has two horns on his head. And he has kind of like, uh, almost like the Spider-Man wings underneath his arm now. But uh, the general shape of his head is still the same. He still has the same red eyes that Herb Trimpey always drew Godzilla with in the Marvel Godzilla. So, I'm, I'm, you know, it's it's close enough for government work. They lost the license. They can't say it's Godzilla. We're, we're going to just accept the premise that it's Godzilla here. Over on pages uh, two and three, Tony and Rhodey. This is them at Circuits Maximus, for those of you who may not remember. Uh, this was the small company with, um, what was it, uh, Irwin and Climanestra, where the two, the brother and sister team, this was like a startup that Tony was helping while he was recovering from uh, his, his, you know, completely falling off the wagon uh, with his alcoholism. They have a little geodesic dome, it just says Circuits Maximus. I want to say this gets destroyed right near the end of the O'Neill run, which we're not that far from. Uh, really, because you think about it, um, you know, the issue 200 is a Silver Centurion, Tony getting back in the armor, and then it's not too long after that that uh, Bob uh, Layton and Dave Michelinie come back, and I want to say that, that the Circuits Maximus is destroyed sometime around 200. Uh, but we get Tony and Rody talking, status quo of the time. Uh, this leads, this all this is leading up to 200, the idea of Tony refuses to put the armor back on. Rhodey is Iron Man, but he's getting these terrible headaches when he's wearing the armor. Um, Tony has the full beard here, which is nice. This was kind of his look. Um, he, he started growing this when he was living on the street, and he's kept it for this era. And he keeps it for quite a while. I say quite a while. Keeps it for at least a little while after this, before he goes back to, to just the mustache a little bit later into the 80s. But uh, it, it, it's definitely of the time. This was not an uncommon type of scene in Iron Man at this period, where it was the interpersonal relationship between Rhodey and Tony was one of the driving forces. And I think it's one of the reasons that Rhodey has had such a um, a long career, not only as one of Tony's supporting characters, like he is right now in the uh, current Tony Stark Iron Man book by Dan Slott, but also on his own, as, as uh, both as Iron Man, when Tony's not been around, and as War Machine. I think it's one of the reasons that uh, we got to know Rhodey so well, is one of the reasons why uh, he's he's been such a, a versatile and well-used character. Over onto uh, page five now. Hey, Dr. Demonicus is back with more henchmen, even, and a, 
a, you know, a whole underwater complex here. It's fantastic. I do have to ask, um, where does he get the money to afford all of this? I, I've often wondered that about Dr. Demonicus. You know, he, he seems fairly small scale, but he's got like the full, um, you know, uh, Stromberg from the Spy Who Loved Me deal here with a, a whole undersea station full of henchmen and technology and weapons, but he must have some kind of money unless somebody's backing him. But who would be backing him? I don't under I don't think making giant monsters would be Hydra's bag. Maybe AIM, but why would AIM allow him to go out here and be Doctor Demonicus? Except maybe plausible deniability. I guess I don't know. Maybe that's answered. I just don't know those comments. So I like it though. I like seeing Doctor Demonicus back. Uh, over now onto page six, we get a uh, panel four. Um, we get uh, Hawkeye and Mockingbird at West Coast Avengers headquarters when the distress call comes in from Tigra. We get a good look here at, at Mockingbird's costume, and and, I, and I'll be the first to tell you, I don't know as much about Mockingbird as I should. I've never been a huge Hawkeye fan. I mean, I like again, I like Hawkeye in the context of the Avengers. Never read solo Avengers. Never read any of his own books, but. Mockingbird has always had just such a great costume, you know, especially for uh, a female costume from this era. Yeah, it's got kind of a low top, but it's it's that squared off top, so it's not a complete scoop neck, you know, it's not just all cleavage all the time. But just the, the black and the white with the big domino mask and the blonde hair and the buccaneer boots, even the flared sleeves. I always saw Mockingbird had a great look, and especially for a character as action-oriented as Mockingbird, you know, I mean, I, I love the Wasp. Wasp is one of my favorite Marvel heroines, but, you know, Janet's not mixing it up, you know, with people. She's flying around zapping them. The Mockingbird, she's, you know, crunching dudes in the skull with her fighting sticks, right? So having a, a dynamic costume like that that looks sharp as she's spinning around, um, it, it really helps. And I think Luke McDonald does a good job on, on Hawk, um, Hawk, on Mockingbird's costume here in this issue. The next panel, panel five, we get, uh, Iron Man's dramatic entrance. As he's coming in out of a, a dark door, and we see his fist moving forward and his legs striding forward. He's lit from the back with a gleam off the side. Lots of inks here. Very dramatic work uh, from the art team. Over now on to page 7, uh, panel 3. Uh, Hawkeye shoots uh, Tony with a... Um, it, it's a an arrow that ties him up with cables, basically. It's like a capture arrow. And Tony just kind of flexes the muscles. Just... And Tony just kind of flexes the suit and snaps all of them. It's a little bit different, but it reminds me a lot of Iron Man Volume 1, Number 1, breaking the chain around him. Also, um, kind of a shout-out to my uh, my buddies who are Superman fans, a little bit like uh, Superman Number 233, Kryptonite No More, with the Kryptonite chain, where Superman's breaking the Kryptonite chain. Kind of reminds me of that. So it's, I don't think it's an homage. I think it's just that's the way that you do that sort of pose. But it is what my mind jumped to. Uh, further on down, panel 8, Tony reveals his identity to Hawkeye and Mockingbird. Now, this would come up, this idea that Tony reveals identity to Hawkeye, at least. I don't know if this ever came up with Mockingbird, because when I started reading Avengers, Mockingbird was dead. But the idea that, that Hawkeye knew Tony's identity would be... I remember that being a thing in Avengers, like in Avengers Volume 3... Um, maybe the tail end of volume one, not so much volume two, obviously, but, but I remember it being a big deal that, you know, Tony had revealed it because Tony had not revealed his identity to, to most of the entire team, you know, but, but Hawkeye knew at this point. And then of course, Tony went public with his identity the first time in Iron Man 400, which was volume three, number 55. Um, and then 
confusingly, he went public with his identity. Then the identity was secret again because uh, Miller wanted him to reveal his identity during Civil War. So why anyone would ever believe Tony is not Iron Man at this point, I don't know. But I'm not a highly paid comic book writer, so I'm just a fan. Uh, in reaction to that, over on page 8, panel 1, we get Hawkeye's wild take with his uh, mouth hanging agape and his eyes just bugging out of his head. And he's like, Tony goes, you, you were... <laughs> it's like his brain stops working for a while. And Tony's just like, look, it's a long story. Anyway, Rhodey's one of my best friends. So it's the truth. I, I just I just love this this look, this facial expression from Hawkeye because all we've not seen the pupils of his eyes except for one other panel, and here they're his eyes are just gigantic. So really amusing. Over now onto um, page nine, panel two, when um, Tony refuses to go with uh, Hawkeye and Mockingbird, and Hawkeye says, "You're telling me you're opting out." And Tony says, I must. I'm sorry. And he's wearing the armor without the helmet, and his head's just hanging with a hangdog look on it. It's got this stark white background. There's no background at all. It's just the figure. Completely isolates Tony in his moment of just self-pity. Again, very common for this era when uh, after Tony had rock bottom in 187, somewhere around there in the 180, late 180s, when he was back, being sober and he was on the mend, the his self-pity was kind of his defining trait. It gets a little hard to read after a while because he, he is just so down on himself and he is so angry at himself and he just isolates himself. Tony's bad about, you know, closing up the walls and isolating himself anyway. After the whole thing with the alcoholism and being drunk on the streets, it just got really worse. And part of this was the journey that he had to go to to get to uh, issue 200 where he could be Iron Man again here. But I like the creative choice of no background to completely isolate him from all of his surroundings. And it's only the one panel that we get that. Uh, further on down to page panels five and six, um, it looks like Dr. Demonicus shrunk Godzilla's arms down uh, because his arms look a lot smaller here relative to the rest of his body. Now, Marvel Godzilla, Herb Trippy, Drew, he did have somewhat shorter arms than Godzilla would in live action, but these look a little bit smaller. Um, you know, again, I'm, it's, it's just Luke McDonald drawing them. It's not a big deal. It's just me being nitpicky. Uh, his his, his um, hands are now webbed as well. We get a good look at that in, in these panels. Over on to uh, page 10 now. This is a, a top-notch, top-notch page here. From McDonald and his uh, and the rest of the art team, it is a flashback, and we get a close up in the center of Tony's face, and he's looking off to the distance very pensively, and then we get four panels around the corners of the page depicting moments from this storyline. It's uh, crucial events here in O'Neill's run. Um, it's it it's just great. The you know we get Tony in his in his underpants um, when he we first. When he first gave up being Iron Man, he had a, a whole bout where he was drinking. He was in the vault. Uh, Tony getting rescued by Captain America from the Tenement Fire. Stain putting their name on uh, Stark Enterprises. That's that classic cover. I think that's in that's in the late 170s, I think. I don't know. and I'm not going to grab the index and look it up. Uh, them taking down the RK and putting up the NE to make it Stain International. We got Tony on the street in the snowstorm drinking. Just a really good page. It's really indicative of this era. And like I said, McDonald's art is fantastic here. This is a really good, really nice page. I really liked it. 
Um, and then on page 11, Tony gets very introspective and thoughtful. Uh, the art is appropriately moody all throughout. There's a lot of inks, a lot of black, where he throws the helmet down and he's just going on and on to himself about... Um, uh, he says, if I didn't want to play superhero anymore, why did I come here in armor? Why didn't I come here as just playing Tony Stark? Or why didn't I just phone in Rhodey's resignation? I guess deep down I still crave the recognition, the glamour, the excitement that being Iron Man gives me. Deep down I want to regain the respect people used to have for me. And uh, and so it's... yeah. I, again, this this era of Iron Man gets a lot of, a lot of notoriety. Um, it doesn't get as much as Bob and Dave's first run. And, and that's probably a lot because a lot of the things, and, and I've talked about this on, not so much in this podcast, but elsewhere that pre Bob and Dave Iron Man does not get a lot of play. But some of the things that like, uh, Archie Goodwin and, um, George Tuska on the art and stuff like that, that they were doing on that book lays the groundwork for a lot of the stuff that would come in the late seventies into the eighties. It wasn't like, you know, Iron Man was just, you know, um, straightforward superheroics until Bob and Dave showed up and then suddenly he had depth. That's not really the case. But this era, because it is just so different, first off with Rhodey being in the suit, with Tony being a drunk, it's kind of a daring idea. You know, you, you'd have a hard time. It, it's still amazing to me that they pulled this off in 1985. You know, Marvel was uh, into changing their characters some, but not like wholesale like this. And they did it. You know, I think you could get away with this in 1985 because Iron Man was not the A-list kind of character that he is now post-movie. Um, so, I, and I really liked it. I remember reading through this. I remember thinking it was daring. It was different. It made me appreciate not only Tony, but also Rhodey and also the other characters that were around him and introduced a new cast because we got Rhodey's cast and not the same cast that we had been following at Stark with... Um, you know, Bambi Arbogast and Bethany Cabe, even though we'll, I'll talk about her in a minute, and the rest of the crew that Bob and Dave used. So I, I like this era a lot, even though it is so different than what normally comes to mind when I think of Iron Man in the 80s. I think about Bob and Dave, you know? But the the, uh, the O'Neill stuff is, is really good. And again, I liked an excuse to be able to read it here. Uh, turning over now to page 12, uh, panel 6. Tigra is walking in the rain through the village in her costume. And I put costume in air quotes in my notes. It's so impractical. It's just a teeny tiny bikini. I mean, that's all it is. I mean, yeah, she's got fur, so who knows? I, I, I mean, I get it. She's got fur. You want to show that off. You want her to look like, uh, you know, like a, like the, a, a wear tiger or whatever she's supposed to be, right? So you want to do that. But, uh, but I'm just putting a Jack Russell wore pants. I'm just saying. Putting it out there for whatever it's worth. So moving on. Um, down in panel eight on this same page, uh, Mockingbird and Hawkeye are in the Quinjet. They're talking about Dr. Demonicus. Mockingbird says, this guy had a run-in with S.H.I.E.L.D. a few years back, a real looney tune, wanted to rule the world. And we get a footnote to Shogun Warriors number 14. That's so great. I love it. We can't mention Godzilla, but we can still mention Shogun Warriors because we're not using... Because they can. I just think it's so fantastic. I love that. It, it adds very little to the story. But it, it really made me smile. Over on uh, page 15, Tigra attacks Godzilla. This goes about as well as can be expected as um, she uh, basically bounces right off to him. This leads directly to page 16, panel 1. Or as I call it, the death of Tigra. As uh, 
Godzilla backhands her with a splock and sends her flying. Now, uh, Tigra, of course, does not die, much like in the Marvel Godzilla series. She probably shouldn't survive this strike from a giant monster, but, you know, again, we're willing to let it go. Uh, she actually grabs onto a tree limb and kind of vaults out of there, so I give her credit for keeping her situational awareness. Um, down on um, panel five on the same page, um, Dr. Demonicus, he has some very basic despotic motivations. Uh, um, he says, because uh, he, he, he sees Tigra in the tree as she's getting away from Godzilla. She goes, the woman in the treetop. She must be the pilot we seek. Kill her, then kill the villagers. It's like, you know, Dr. Doom or Magneto, this guy is not. He does not have a complex series of motivations befitting introspection and, uh, you know, character, um, you know, um, development. He's just a despot. And in some ways, I love that because he's a guy that makes giant monsters. He doesn't need to be deep. I'm just saying. Uh, over on page uh, 17, panel 2, Hawkeye is seasick which just really amuses me for some reason that they are sitting in the crash Quinjet and he is getting queasy as he has apparently eaten the whole box of seasick pills. So uh, down uh, further on the page, panels five through seven, uh, we get a great bit here. We get the little interlude in New York with Bethany Cave and the, uh, the doorman says, say, ain't I seen you someplace before? And she goes, perhaps my name is Cabe, Bethany Cabe. I would totally read a Bethany Cabe solo book. Um, she has had a role in Tony Stark Iron Man as the head of security uh, at uh, at Stark. Um, I guess it was called Stark Enterprises. I guess again in that book, and uh, and it's great seeing Bethany Cabe back. I'm she I'm a, I'm a big fan of Bethany Cabe. Now this this is a, a very uh, worthwhile appearance because Bethany Cabe she disappeared from the book back forty issues prior in issue 153, and we had not seen Bethany Cave anywhere until right here. And then she will play a role going forward with the resolution of this story up into issue 200, and then uh, pick back up again. But she, I mean, Bethany was a, a, you know, she was a regular character for years and years, and that's why I think there's still so much affection for her as a character, so I just liked seeing Bethany Cave pop up here after uh, her long absence. Over on uh, page 18, panel 1, Godzilla's got kind of a Titanosaurus vibe going on here. He's got the um, the fin on his back and, uh, you know, the, just kind of the long neck and the long face. He looks kind of like Titanosaurus a little bit. Now, Terror of Mechagodzilla was widely available in the United States in 1985 on home video. So it's possible, but unlikely that... Uh, Luke McDonald took any inspiration from Titanosaurus. It's just my Daikaiju geek brain connecting things that may not exist. Uh, panel two on that page. <laughs> this really amused me. Tigra is trying to get Godzilla's attention. So she does like the cutie pose where she puts one hand on her hip and one hand on her forehead, sweeping her hair back, you know, and, uh, and kind of has her hips akimbo a little bit. Hey, bright eyes, want to play? Want to dance with Tigra? Uh, I don't know why, um, but she does this cutie pose to get his attention, and it works, and she runs, and then she trips over a root. It's like this adding, uh, I, I feel bad for Tigra in this. She's got, you know, first off, she's out of her weight class, okay? She's fighting a giant monster. If you want Tigra to go fight Dr. Demonicus, I'm okay with that because, you know, she's got her agility, she's got her strength, she's got her claws. She has, not, she has nothing in her arsenal to fight a giant monster. I'm sorry. She just doesn't. 
So she's already out of her out of her weight class, and then she trips over a root while running away. It's like, yikes. I'm sorry. She's not having a good day. Uh, page 19, panels 1 and 2. Um, now, here, Godzilla's hand scale, it's consistent with earlier, um, and it makes more sense when he picks her up. It's, it's a little out of scale with that first, the first shot, um, the, the splash page, but it's more, con- I don't know, like I said, it's hard to tell with this. It's, uh, Jack Bond's gonna get on me here, but, you know, the, the scale of monsters in superhero comics is tough. Because they're not, I don't, I don't think these artists typically draw giant things. They typically draw human-sized things. And so the scale gets, gets screwy every now and again. Um, oddly enough, neither Hawkeye nor Tony recognize Godzilla from Godzilla 23 and 24, where, of course, Godzilla fought the Avengers in New York. Now, he does look different, as I said. But you'd think a giant green lizard monster would at least say, Hey, remember that time that we did that thing in New York? You know, but I guess they figure, well, Dr. Demonicus makes lots of monsters. What's one more, right? Uh, pages 22 and 23, Tony actually carries Godzilla out to sea. This is very questionable considering the age of the armor because he's wearing the original armor, but also how heavy Godzilla is and whether heroes can lift him. That varies through Godzilla's appearances in the Marvel comics. Um, I'll reference way back to Hercules kind of tripping him uh, in San Francisco early on in the Godzilla series. And then Thor has kind of the uh, the, the, the shoving match between the, uh, the Chrysler building and Empire State building, I think, in, in New York in, at the end of the Godzilla series. So how strong and how heavy Godzilla is seems to change. Again, we maybe, you know, no prizing it. Maybe Dr. Demonicus has shrunk him a little bit. Maybe his bones are lighter. I don't know. This, this is really suspect to me just from like, if this was, if this was the current red and gold armor, current at this time of the book, I'd say, okay, maybe, but the original armor was not as strong as that. So it, this is, this is what we call Iron Man fan problems, right? Questioning this kind of stuff. But, uh, it's kind of a low key finale, um, with Tony just kind of flying off and then, um, Mockingbird and, um, Hawkeye having mopped up the henchmen talking to each other. It's very kind of a low-key ending, but it does lead into the next issue a little bit. Uh, so I, I guess that's okay. This being in the 80s, we didn't need necessarily uh, a big Silver age style cliffhanger uh, all the time, especially in this book, which seemed to be a little more uh, thoughtful in some ways than maybe Iron Man had been in other eras. And that I'm, that's kind of damning the other eras with faint praise, which isn't my intention. But as I said, this book was, at this time, uh, as much as it was about the superhero stuff, was still about kind of the interpersonal relationships and took that approach. So uh, overall, good issue. I enjoyed it. You know, um, just seeing Iron Man and uh, West Coast Avengers tangle with Godzilla, that that's pretty fun. Um, it, it's, you know, it, I said it's, it's in a very unique era, uh, era of Iron Man for when Rhodey's in the armor and Tony, Tony is not. And Tony appears here in the old armor. Um, and, uh, great to see Dr. Demonicus again. As I said, I love Luke McDonald's art. I'm a big fan of that. So I enjoyed this issue. Not one of the best issues of Iron Man ever, but again, as part of this overall storyline and for the fact that Dr. Demonicus and Godzilla appear in it, I am a fan. So, um, looking through the issue, no letters page this time. Unfortunately, we do get the bullpen bulletins. Um, Jim Shooter's bullpen bulletins, a little, a little, uh, lower key. Uh, he does have a happy new year, uh, thing at the top. And then, Best thing, or not the best, but the most kind of the most noteworthy aspect of bullpen bulletins 
little box calling out um, uh, the death of Don Newton in August, and uh, also the death of uh, Phil Suling. Uh, Phil was the comics distributor who virtually single-handedly created the de direct sales distribution system. So uh, some sad news there in the uh, the bullpen bulletins. In the hype box, uh, we get Secret Wars number 12, which is uh, pretty cool. Uh, Web of Spider-Man number one, which is which is interesting. Uh, I did not realize that Web of Spider-Man number one came out the same time as the end of Secret Wars, because Web of Spider-Man number one is when the alien suit is supposedly killed with the with the uh, the bell the bells in the church, and so it only been twelve issues, I guess that. Uh, yeah, I guess it had only been about a year that uh, Peter had the suit, got rid of the suit, and then the suit came back in web. So, interesting. And then Ron 65 in the Marvel Index to Amazing Spider-Man. Um, flipping through the book, we get a nice house ad for Cloak and Dagger on the inside front cover. Nice, uh, shiny thing. Now in their own bi-monthly comic. Um, find your way to the Newton's treasure chest, a little puzzle. Uh, we get a Star Comics house ad. Uh, my kids have some Star Comics, mostly Mad Balls, which comes a little bit after... Uh, this era, but they have, um, they put out some big, thick star comics, like not digest, but over, like, but not full size, like that medium size. I've got one of those that the kids like. It's got Planetary and, uh, Wally the Wizard and that kind of stuff in it. Um, let's see, we got a Rocket Raccoon. You met him in The Incredible Hulk. Now, Rocket Raccoon has his own limited series. Who would have known that Rocket Raccoon would be, uh, you know, big time movie star, Rocket Raccoon? Uh, we got a Hodgepodge ad. Um, it says, you know, there's, there's really, we get, I get, they do like this on this hodgepodge. We do get one for choose your own adventure, which is, well, I love choose your own adventure when I was a kid, read lots and lots of those books. Um, my, uh, some of my kids enjoy them too. They're, they're not as common nowadays. I remember my school, uh, not in my school library per se, but like my classrooms, those classroom libraries always had paperbacks to choose your own adventures for me to read. Um, the Power Pack and Amazing Spider-Man on tips on ways to prevent sexual abuse. I've actually never read that PSA comic, but I remember seeing this ad many times. Uh, we get a subscription ad with Duke from G.I. Joe. Nice touch. And then, uh, another Star Comics ad on the outside back cover. Inside for, uh, back cover is, this is the little strip with Spider-Man asking what type of ads do you like to see in your book? Don't worry, we have no intention of running more ads. We just want to run the ones you tell us you like. Um, yeah, it's just just strange. I don't know. I, I guess they want to know what advertisers to go after. I guess so. Anyway, that's uh, that, that's Iron Man one ninety three. Uh, very, uh, like I said a lot of fun for me to visit an Iron Man issue when I hadn't read in a few years. And of course, more Marvel Godzilla and Doctor Demonicus is always nice. What do you folks think? You have any fond memories of this era? Have you gone back and checked it out? Did you read it when it was coming out? I didn't. I was too young. I didn't uh, get into Iron Man. Until about uh, about a decade later, actually, right during the crossing is when I started reading Iron Man when I was in high school. Uh, but uh, but obviously gone back and then filled in quite just about everything at this point. So please write in Earth Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. I'd love to get your thoughts, your your opinions on Iron Man 193. Do you like the Danny O'Neill era uh, with Rhodey uh, as Iron Man? Do you not like it? Uh, what are your thoughts? Let me know. I'd love to talk about them here on the show. All right, folks, I'm going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to close things out here on Earth Destruction Directive.
Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jason Giaconetti. You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And if you don't, you should be listening. But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? Other robots just can't deny that when the Queen of Space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive, and it is time for what is always my favorite segment, a little bit of listener feedback. And if you would like to get in touch with the show, you can always email us here at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You can also find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, just listen to the outro to the show, and that'll give you all the information you need for getting in touch with you. So I've got an email to read here, and uh, our email, it's from it's from Jimmy. Jimmy! Jimmy from NASA! Jimmy is here! Jimmy! Jimmy writes, alive and well after the war in space. Hello, Luke. Believe it or not, this is Jimmy from NASA. Jimmy! Jimmy! Everybody loves Jimmy. (laughs) Oh, man. The reports of my death were greatly exaggerated. Nathan Marchand, the host of the Monster Island Film Vault podcast, Recently shared the episode you did on the infamous War in Space. I must say, as a veteran of said war, I very much enjoyed your entertaining coverage of the film and was flattered by the praise you gave to the, quote, token gaijin, or as Nathan puts it, quote, token white guy in the movie. I'm happy to say that I did survive the battle with the Daimaken, but I'm not telling you how. Nathan says it was through the, quote, power of retcon or something. Now I have a job, a new job on Monster Island as the intrepid producer on Nathan's new podcast. You'll hear me sometimes, by sometimes I mean often, on the show fact-checking Nathan and keeping him honest. While I'm proud of the work I did on The Gotten, I wasn't the one who added the awkward rockets you all joked about, and honestly, I don't know how they defied physics and didn't send the ship into a spiral. I'm blaming that on the filmmakers not consulting with a scientist like myself. Now, if you'll excuse me, I need to write next week's Jimmy's Notes blog for the Monster Island Film Vault's latest episode on the Godzilla anime trilogy. Sincerely, Jimmy from NASA. Thank you so much, Jimmy. I, Jimmy, <laughs> Jimmy, uh, <laughs> I am, I am hooked up with Jimmy and Nathan on Twitter. Uh, as, as Jimmy said, he is the producer for, uh, Nathan Marton's, uh, Monster Island Film Vault podcast, which is monsterislandfilmvault.com. I'm sorry to say I have not checked out the show. It's not from lack of trying. I'm trying to get caught up on my other podcasts before I add something new. Uh, but Nathan and Jimmy, they are worth the follow on Twitter. Uh, Jimmy's handle is, uh, at NASA Jimmy. And, um, yeah, and, and they, they are, they are a hoot going back and forth. I definitely want to check that out. Actually, I've been, I've been very, um, trying to think of the, the, the right word. It's been very, uh, um, Enlight, not enlightening, but it's it's been very a very good feeling for me lately. Um, my my th- my thesaurus brain is is 
faltering at the moment. Uh, enheartening, enheartening, that's the word. It's been very enheartening lately because in addition to, of course, our Destruction Directive and some of the more established older podcast, you know, the Gargantia cast and such, uh, the Monster Island Film Vault has started up and there is a, a the Kaiju Apostle show. So we're getting sort of a, a, a little fan circle of the, these Daikaiju podcasts. Uh, at least on Twitter, kind of talking to each other, and and I, it, it very, like I said, it, it really makes me feel very good inside to know that you know that um, after all the stuff we've gone through over the last year, last year or so, with the really just obnoxious fandoms online, and 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 you know, I'm not saying that the the Godzilla, the Daikaiju fandom was as bad as some of the other ones, but there were bad elements. There's bad elements to every fandom, especially online. But these guys that I've been talking to a lot on Twitter seem to espouse the same sort of positive energy, positive attitude, you know, uh, putting forward what, what, uh, to quote, you know, my, my friend Shag, what, br- what brings you your joy, uh, that they seem to have that same type of mindset that I do. So I really appreciate that. I'm definitely checking out Monster Island Film Vault. I think you should too. Uh, I said monsterislandfilmvault.com. Jimmy, Jimmy, thank you for writing in. And I'm glad to hear you're okay after the war in space because it didn't look so hot for you there at the end of that. I'm just saying. <laughs> Uh, so social media likes, shares, and retweets for our last episode came in, and uh, we got uh, all sorts of social media love from Gene Hendricks, Jimmy, and Nathan from the Monster Island Film Vault, Fan Holes Podcast, Robert Lugwig, the most sane man among us, Chuck Rodriguez, two true freaks, the professor, Alan Middleton, Bob Hansen, Will Lomax, Bodo Winter, Podcast Partners, my brother, Jay Giaconetti, John Vanover, the hair metal hero, Chris Tyler, my good pal, Joe Butler, Derek William Crabb of the Fanholes Podcast, Robert Ward, Brian Severt, Burma Gaynor, Brorad, and Tyler Zweistein. Thank you very much, everyone, for your social media support. I really appreciate it. It helps get the word out there for Earth Destruction Directive. Uh, your likes and shares and retweets, that means everything to me, and I, I really love seeing that. I appreciate it very much. So thank you very much. And again, if you want to get in touch, uh, just listen to the outro. I've got all the ways to get in touch with you. So um, now we come to the time in the episode where we have to ask, what are we covering next time? We must always look forward. And uh, since we've done an Ultraman episode and we've done a Gamera episode, I think it's time we get back over to the Godzilla series and we are going old school. We're going Showa, which is appropriate as that Criterion Edition uh, Blu-ray set just came out uh, not too long ago as I'm recording this. And we are jumping to Godzilla's Revenge, more commonly known now as All Monsters Attack, but known to me and anyone else who grew up in the 80s as Godzilla's Revenge. And you'll remember this one with the little kid and Minya having adventures on Monster Island that may or may not all be a dream. In addition, we're going to be taking a look at Iron Man number 194 and 196. Uh, If I'm remembering this right, it's been a few years since I've read them. 194 only has like a cameo appearance of uh, a Godzilla-related character. 196 is a more uh, fully-fledged appearance. So we're going to be taking a look at both of those. We may mention 195 as well, which is uh, that one involves Rhodey going to see Shaman of Alpha Flight and doesn't include uh, any of the Godzilla-related characters that I recall. But... In any event, we'll take a look at that. I'm loving covering Iron Man. I'm always looking for excuses to talk about Iron Man. My favorite superhero was before the movie, too. I'd like to point that out. I started reading Iron Man when I was in high school, which was uh, long ago, before the last great Ice Age, as we might say. Anyway, hopefully we'll have some news on Godzilla vs. Kong or uh, new Ultraman releases or anything like that. And uh, Obviously, we'll cover it all here. Love to get some feedback from you guys. Really appreciate it. 
And, uh, you know, that's all I've got for now. I want to thank everybody for listening. Remember, all are welcome here at Dirt Destruction Directive. If you want to be a part of this show, you are welcome to part, be a part of. I don't turn anyone away. If you want to talk about uh, giant monsters, this is a, a place that you can come to talk about giant monsters. So thank you again for downloading. Thank you again for listening. Hope everyone enjoyed the show. And until next time, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF <laughs> moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.